Beloved, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here is a reading of God's word. May the Lord bless it to us. Let us pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We began last week looking at one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. Understand this chapter. Understand this chapter, dear Christian, and you will have a solid grasp on one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible, namely the doctrine of union with Christ. That is what this chapter is about. This is one of the most important doctrines in all of the Bible, union with Christ, and its inestimable saving benefits for the redeemed child of God. Two of those benefits of being brought into union with Christ, of course, are justification and sanctification. Now, when you come to sign a contract or a policy, perhaps an insurance policy, you say, well, what are the benefits of this policy? What do I receive as a result of coming into this contractual relationship with this insurance company? Well, when we are brought into union with Christ, in his, then there are benefits to that union. And two of these benefits are justification and sanctification. We talked about another one this morning in Sunday school, adoption. Paul has been explaining the doctrine of justification for two and a half chapters. We as a church have been walking through uh, these chapters, uh, considering the doctrine of justification for several months. And here Paul proclaims the good news that while original righteousness was lost in the first Adam in the garden, while original righteousness was lost in the first Adam in the garden at the fall, divine righteousness or a saving righteousness has been revealed in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Paul announces in chapter 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. In other words, the righteousness required for a right standing with God is provided by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is crucial to understanding what it means to be a Christian. The righteousness required for a right standing with God, because you don't have a right standing with God simply because you're an American, or you're from a good family, or you do some pretty good things, or you've done some accomplishments. No, the righteousness required, there is righteousness required for a right standing with God. And we don't have it on our own. It was lost in Adam. We sinned in Adam, Romans 5 taught us. And so in Adam, we are dead, lost, under the realm and sphere and power of sin. And so there is a righteousness required for a right standing with God. And that is provided, that righteousness is provided by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now listen, the one who fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, the one who fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf, perfectly obeying God's law in our place. What a gospel. But Christ goes further than just providing the necessary righteousness for our salvation. There's more, and there needs to be more if we are going to be saved, if we're going to be made right with God. What is that? Well, Jesus laid down his life, his perfect life, to pay the debt of our sin. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid those wages. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid those wages in our place for our sin. Jesus, the righteous one, satisfied God's holy justice. He didn't set aside his justice in order that we would be saved, he satisfied his justice as he crushed his son. His son came to die for us willingly. The father willingly gave him over. So God's justice is satisfied by Christ's death on the cursed tree. He suffered, bled, and died for our redemption, and on the third day he rose again. Death could not hold Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was innocent. He did Nothing wrong. He never sinned. And so he rose victoriously from the grave and thus vanquished sin, hell, and death for sinners who by grace put their faith and trust in him. Therefore, this is the big therefore as we come to Romans 6. Therefore, united to Christ, our living head, united to Christ, our living head, through faith, God declares sinners righteous in his sight. United to Jesus Christ, through faith, by the Holy Spirit, God declares sinners righteous in his sight, namely justified. Justified. Our position before God, therefore, is that we've been accepted by the Father in Jesus Christ, just as if we had never sinned. 
It's just as if you never sinned. When you stand before God one day at the judgment, you will either be in Christ or in Adam. If you are in Adam, you will still be robed in the tatters of your own sin. But in Christ, you will be forgiven of all of your sins, for those sins will have been nailed to the cross, and you will bear their their guilt no more, and you will be robed in the spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when God looks at you, He will declare you righteous and justified and usher you into everlasting life as a co-heir of Christ. This is justification. It's just as if you have never sinned if you are in Christ on that day. Hallelujah. We are as unlikely, you, dear one, are as unlikely to be disinherited and cast off than the Son of God Himself. Let that sink in on those days where where you're struggling with your assurance, where you're wondering if God still loves you. You are as unlikely, if you are in Christ, by grace through faith, you are as unlikely to be disinherited and cast off than the Son of God Himself, for you are united to Him. And you can't be disunited from him. God begins a work and he finishes it. He's not like us. He has no unfinished projects that go on for eternity. God will never forsake his son, and so he'll never forsake those who are united to him. No, he has exalted Christ above all things and seated him on the throne of heaven. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are seated with Christ. We are seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. And so we are even now tasting of that and experiencing that union and communion with Christ in part. But one day we will know it in full. One day that we will be there with him and sin will no longer be an obstructor to our fellowship with God and one another. So we are seated with him in the heavenly places, even now, inseparably and mystically joined to our risen and exalted king right now. And so Paul essentially tells us to be who we are. To be who you are. Don't act like the person who is still under the realm of sin and death unless you still are there. You are inseparably and mystically joined to the risen and exalted King now, a union that will be fully revealed and manifested at his glorious return. Dear ones, it is this gospel truth that compels us to no longer fear condemnation and to boldly approach God's throne of grace in life and in worship. The question this morning is not what lies Let me rephrase this. The question is not, are we listening to the lies of the world and the lies of our own hearts that creep up? The question is, which ones are you listening to? And how are they undermining your walk with Jesus? What lies are you listening to that the world is telling you? That all that you need is here. That what's what's most important is 
is, is what you see and not the unseen. That battles really are fought amidst what we see and, and the spiritual battles, we don't even really mention those. Why, why even mention those? Even though Paul spends an entire, well, at least an entire, almost an entire chapter in Ephesians 6 talking about spiritual warfare, the importance of prayer. But see, it's this truth about union with Christ that compels us to no longer fear condemnation and to boldly approach the throne of grace in life and in worship. Charles Wesley was captured by this truth in 1738 when he wrote his famous hymn, And Can It Be? He wrote, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. It's the theology of Romans 5 and 6 that inspires hymns like this. and By God's Spirit through faith assures us of our union with Christ and the significance of our communion with Christ. And it's important to understand the distinction between those two things. Our union with Christ never changes. It never ebbs and flows. We don't come in and out of God's love or in and out of Christ's forgiveness or in and out of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's done. That's settled. If you are united to Christ, that is settled. And it doesn't ebb and flow. It doesn't change. That's union with Christ. And we're going to see in a minute why it's so important to understand this from Romans chapter 6. But our communion with Christ ebbs and flows. It ebbs and flows. Sometimes we feel closer to God. Sometimes we feel farther away from God. It's oftentimes because we are not making diligent use of the means of grace. We're neglecting the privileges that God's given to us, which is why our communion with God sometimes ebbs rather than flows. But we must all admit that our communion with God ebbs and flows. But praise be to God, our union with Christ does not. So our confidence, our trust, is not in the way that we are performing spiritually. Our trust is in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. The fact that we've been brought into union with him by grace through faith and we believe his promises. Promises which are declared from this font and from this table and from this pulpit which we believe and must stay central in the life of the church. These are the means that God has provided us so that this theology of union with Christ is punctuated, highlighted, and underscored. Again, one of these is baptism, and we recognize that from our text this morning. Look with me again at our text this morning as we open up Romans 6. And last week, of course, we looked at verses 1 and 2. Paul says in verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul writes. How can we who died to sin still live in it. So just previous to this, in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, 
You see, Paul explaining to us that in Adam all died, but in Christ, those who have faith in Christ, all are made alive. And he anticipates a question that will come in response to verse 20. And look with me at verse 20 of chapter 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul anticipates a question. If the law was given to increase sin or, 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 or the, the, um, to uncover sin, to reveal sin more and more, because when you receive commands and you know you break those commands, then you recognize there's a lot of sin. So if the law was given to increase sin and to expose sin, and when sin increased, grace abounded all the more, well then, that must mean that if we keep sinning a lot, then God's grace will abound a lot, and that's a good thing. Paul is countering this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, Paul is countering the arguments of antinomians and legalists. The antinomian will assume that there are no moral implications to union with Christ, to justification, to being in union with Christ, that the more we sin, the more God pours out His abundant grace, and so we should not be very circumspect about the manner in which we live. There is some of this that's probably in all of our hearts as we take God's grace for granted, right? But this is, Paul is countering the argument of a true antinomian who really thinks that they need to show no real exercise of faith, no real commitment to the Lord, no real feeling towards the Lord, nothing, and yet, and can continue sinning in one way or another, and God is just going to keep pouring out His abundant grace. But that's a misunderstanding of what it means to be united to Christ. Because when you've been united to Christ, you have died to sin. And sin no longer reigns over you. And your life is not a life where you have patterns of unrepentant sin, where you feel no real desire to repent of that sin or to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There was a big controversy back in the 80s, the lordship controversy. Can Christ be Savior and not your Lord? Answer? No, He can't be your Savior and not your Lord. Jesus is Savior and Lord. If you're brought into union with Him, He becomes your Savior and Lord. But then there's the legalist who also doesn't like Paul's teaching. He's against Paul's teaching because of the possibility of antinomianism. You know, Paul, if you preach that free grace stuff, people are going to take advantage of that. And so we need to add a little good works to it. We need to add some law to grace so that people don't take advantage of grace. I mean, after all, look at all these antinomians. But Paul, against both of these, he says both are wrong. Paul says that a right understanding of salvation through union with Christ exposes both of these positions licentiousness or antinomianism and legalism, they are both false. 
As I mentioned last week, Paul explains both the legal and transformative effects of union with Christ. In other words, the Apostle Paul explains that when a sinner is united to Christ through faith, he is not only justified, that is declared righteous by God through Christ's blood and righteousness, but he enters a life of growing holiness. So it's not that you're forgiven and then nothing else happens. It's that you are forgiven by being brought into union with Christ. You are justified. And then a life of fruit-bearing begins, of sanctification, of growth in grace, a life of growing conformity to Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ will be sanctified. There is no such thing as saving justifying grace without spiritual growth. Christ said, I am the vine and you are the the branches. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. When you are broken off of the tree of Adam, where you are dead and putrefying and there is no fruit and you are engrafted into the vine of the, the resurrected Uh, ascended and exalted Christ, there will be fruit because you are filled with the same spirit that fills Christ. And there is fruit bearing. There is growth. Those who are in Christ will be sanctified and will be in a process called sanctification, growth in grace, conformity to Christ. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a week. It doesn't happen in a year. It's a lifetime of growth. Sin no longer reigns in us. It does remain in us. And part of that sanctification, as we've been set free from the realm of sin and death, we've been set free in order to, with Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and with the means of grace, to mortify and to kill remaining sin that exists in our lives. Again, as Mount says, quote, any justification that does not lead to sanctification is a sham. How? Can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, how can we who died to the realm and power of sin still live in that sin? I think I may have told this story a couple of years ago, but there's a story of uh, Charles Spurgeon walking down the street in London, and this drunk man walked up to him. He was stumbling. He kind of bumped into him and said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, uh, you saved me two years ago. And of course, Mr. Spurgeon, in all of his wit, said, well, I must have been the one that saved you because it doesn't look like the Lord did. How can those who died to sin still live in that sin? How can we who died to the realm and power of sin still live in that sin? Remember, what Christ, our mediator and representative, did, he did for us. He did for you as if we had done it ourselves. So when he died on the cross to sin, we died on the cross to sin. When he rose from the dead, we rose with him. We are no longer, therefore, under sin, that is, under its power and dominion. We are under grace, under its influence and blessing. In Christ, we are no longer under sin and under the condemnation of the law. We are under grace, grace that both saves and sanctifies us through the Holy Spirit by these 
means of grace. Perhaps this helps us to make sense of so many passages in the Bible, not least Galatians 2, 20 and 21. You know it, where Paul says, I have been crucified, what? With Christ. That's union with Christ language. I, Paul says, have been crucified with Christ. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, to live in Adam is to live for self. You are living and you're living in sin. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we are saved through our obedience to the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But as it is, we, are, we, are, we do not have the righteousness needed. And all of our efforts to please God through our own righteousness fail. They're like filthy rags. We never perform a perfect act. Not for one second of our lives do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Not for one second do we do that. But Christ paid for our sins. And he imputed to us his very righteousness for our salvation. Dear ones, Christian baptism, therefore, signifies and seals this gospel truth to us about union with Christ, to us and to our children. Do you want your children to grow up believing that there is no hope outside of union with Christ, outside of being in Christ, the one who died to sin for us and rose from the dead for us? I know the answer is yes. Here we have this teaching, Romans 6, 3 through 5, that baptism represents these truths. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, because we've got a lot going on in the service today, I'm going to keep these comments brief. But the first thing we need to understand is that this passage is not teaching baptism by immersion only. This is a classic text people go to when they want to make the point that baptism must be done by immersion or it is invalid. We have no explicit text in the Bible that tells us this. There's one text in 1 Peter 3 that talks about baptism and immersion, but that immersion is of the wicked of the world. And Noah is buoyed up on those same waters with his family. 
baptism is mentioned there. In our own confession, we accept three modes of baptism, pouring, sprinkling, and immersion. Baptism in the Bible, it represents washing and purification rites. And it's done in various ways and in different matters and by different modes all throughout Scripture. And this passage here has been used primarily to talk about baptism as being that which must be done by going down under the water all the way and back up. These my Baptist friends, I say, you probably think there are going to be it's a big room full of foreheads. That's all the Presbyterians and Lutherans. Supposed to be a joke. This is not teaching baptism by immersion only. That we go down into the waters representing death in the tomb and emerge out of the waters as Christ rose from the dead. Many have turned to this text to make this point, but it simply doesn't make sense at all when we understand what Paul is teaching in this text. And what he's teaching is union with Christ. That's what he's teaching. And baptism, teaching that baptism is an identification of that union and communion with Christ. How do we know this? Well, Christians are baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, we were baptized into his death, and thus we died to sin. His burial, we're baptized into his burial, and baptized into his resurrection. And so, here's the key, here's the key point. We do not come in and out of our baptism into Christ's death. We don't come in and out of that. This idea that we go down into the waters and come up out of it doesn't make sense in light of union with Christ, where we are brought into union with all of Christ's work. We do not come in and out of our baptism into his death. We don't come out of a baptism into his death. We stay there. We go into a baptism. We are baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Totally. His person and work. We are forever baptized into his person and work, union with Christ. The focus in this passage is not on mode of baptism, but on union and communion with Christ. John Murray says this, quote, if baptism signifies union with Christ, it must mean union with him uh, in all that he is and in all phases of his work as mediator. We continue to be baptized into his death. We don't come out of that, which is often what's signified in baptisms of immersion. They say you're, you're going down in, you're being, and then you're coming out. You don't come out of the death of Christ. You are in it forever along with his burial and resurrection and his ascension. You are united to Christ. That is the point of this, and we shouldn't take away from the force of this text, which is union with Christ in his entire person and work. Secondly, baptism teaches us about justification and sanctification through union with Christ, as does the Lord's Supper. As I mentioned earlier from the Heidelberg Catechism, we have this, this notion of purification. It's in the Old Testament, in the temple, and, and uh, through John's baptism, it's a baptism of purification. 
to, to wash away symbolically the filth of our sin. And so baptism remains that. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, now listen, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so this washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, it speaks to baptism being that which both directs us to our justification and also to our sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Sinclair Ferguson writes this, quote, the sacraments are helps to sanctification precisely because they are means to a fresh realization of our union with Christ. May I ask you a question? When you think about your Christian life, when you think about your church membership, when you think about your your piety, your godliness as a Christian, does baptism ever come to mind that you are baptized, that you are identified with Christ, that you've been marked out as one of his own, and that that baptism symbolizes God's grace given to you through union with Christ? I'm here to encourage you this morning to do just that. The baptism would be something that you think about rarely or occasionally when there's a baptism at church, but that often you would think about the fact that God, by his grace, has, through the minister, given you this means of grace by which your heart is pointed away from yourself to the living Christ, the one with whom you are united by grace through faith. Baptism is not efficacious on its own. It doesn't just do something when you do the act. There must be the work of the Spirit. There must be the gift of faith given and exercised upon Christ. And so we embrace all of this in this doctrine of union with Christ. Look with me again at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Look at verse 10 now. For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. You see the correlation there? We have died to sin because Christ died to sin and we are united to him. So we are no longer in the realm and sphere of sin and death under its dominion, under its power, We have been rescued from that, brought out of that in Christ. We are in him. To say that you could be in Christ and under the dominion of sin is to say that Christ is still under the dominion of sin as he was on the cross, paying for our sins. We would never say that. And so just as Christ died and we are in him, we have died to sin as Christ has died to sin. And now we recognize that this relates to Christ's resurrection, that if Christ lives, and he does, then we live. We live spiritually now, and will one day live physically and spiritually forever in the presence of God and his angels and all of God's people forever and ever. Look with me again at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Those who are united to Christ have died to sin and its dominion and are walking in newness of life. Sin no longer reigns. It does remain. There are sins in there, but they no longer reign and have dominion and power over us. We live in the newness of Christ's resurrection life by the Spirit, and we grow in grace, not as fast as we want, but over time we see growth. We see the Lord at work in us. To say anything differently is to say that Christ's redemption really did virtually nothing. We believe in a supernatural religion. We don't believe in just coming to church and ticking off the box and saying, okay, I've done my duty. We believe in a supernatural religion where we are in union with Christ. And that brings us into a new status before God is justified and a new relationship with God where he sanctifies us. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here is what some scholars call the psychological dynamic to union and communion with Christ. Consider yourselves this because it is true of you. Don't listen to the lies of the world. Don't listen to the lies of your own heart. This is true of you. Dear one, united to Christ, you have died to sin. Therefore, no longer live in it. When you do, and when I do, we confess our sins to the one who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us further from that remaining unrighteousness that is in us. And one day, we will be ushered into glory. The sacraments confirm this to our hearts and give us comfort and peace, the peace, peace with God and the peace of God for his glory and that we might serve him in ever-growing ways. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this rich theology. We thank you for this chapter and the, the beginnings of unpacking the riches of its truth. Would you now feed us as we